episode 268 of Breaking Kayfabe with Boudrin and Barry, or as I like to refer to us, we are the old shoe of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We're the, we're the podcast that maybe people of a certain stature have gotten a little too comfortable with, kind of forgotten. You know, we always say we're the bastard stepchildren of the Arcadian Network, but now maybe Barry, we're the old comfortable shoe, the ones that you don't want to throw away because you're just a little too comfortable with them. Anyway, thought provoking there on today's episode, award winning episode, which features, by the way, from what I've been told, a great rant by yours truly. Uh, I look forward to that. Yes. Uh, we will feature as our match of the week from the Crockett Cup, April 11th, 1987. Oh, it's the man I call B.W. Barry Windham taking on the Nature Boy Ric Flair. We haven't had a Ric Flair match in a while, not a singles match, so people will like that. We have an extended, elongated tug and pull, so it's longer. See what I did there, Barry? Florida Man or Not segment. I know people will like that. And we have an interesting top ten with a controversial Uh Pick for number one, it's Mid-South Wrestling Stars. The top ten stars of Mid-South Wrestling in that number one choice, Barry. Hmm, it was a questionable one, but we'll get to that discussion in just a little bit. Barry Rose, first of all, how you doing, my man? I am doing like a million bucks right now. This is You are not, however, doing better than our friend Chris Spiker and his wife Christine. Uh, As mentioned in other parts of the show, mucho congratulations. Let's be honest, primarily to Mrs. Spiker. Uh, you know, uh, who, by the way, no epidural, according to Chris's post. So, you know, Barry, join me in a round of applause for Mrs. Spiker for, uh, you know, taking it the tough way. Uh, God bless you, Christine. And congratulations to you and Chris and great grandpa Mac. <clears throat> uh, anyway, on that note, Barry, are you ready to go to our match of the week? Let's do it. Barry goes, it's always a good time when you pick a match of the week. And then after you watch the match of the week, you go, nah, you know what? I'm going to go with another one instead. Because originally I had a tag team match from approximately the same time frame. Oh. And then I decided to swerve myself and say, you know what? You know what match we've never done that people talk about as a great match? That is the Barry Wyndham Ric Flair match from the Crockett Cup in Baltimore. Barry, we're talking April 11th, 1987. You had a chance to watch this match. Uh, Barry, was this a one, maybe two-star match? <laughs> the real question with this match is, which which Flair Wyndham was better? Was it the battle of the well, – I guess there were two that were prior to this. There were, well, there was actually three there, prior to this, this match. This, oh, no, no. The, I was going to say this would be like the tri- – like you have the steamboat uh, tree. Right, right. This is the uh, tri- – you had Wyndham uh, Flair from Fayetteville. You had Wyndham Flair from Battle of the Belts in Orlando, and right. then you have Wyndham Flair from the Crockett Cup. And that Fayetteville was a uh, – have you ever been to Fayetteville, by the way? Uh, not uh, if I can help it. Okay. That Fayetteville one was, I think, a worldwide tape. Yeah, right? worldwide wrestling, yes. Yeah. Where did they – where was the arena in Fayetteville? Uh, in downtown. Oh, there you go. <laughs> ask, ask the question, get the answer. <laughs> Absolutely, I deserve that. The reason I say is I'm in Fayetteville. Every, that's where I stay with, uh, Ozzy. There's a specific hotel that we always go to. It's in Fayetteville. So whenever I'm doing the Florida, Pennsylvania trip, 
I'm always in Fayetteville. I've never thought maybe I could swing by and uh, and check out this old arena. But you kind of owe it to the group at this point. I do. I and you know what? I've let you down once again, group, and I definitely apologize for that. With that, this match is off the charts, and in my head, I'm going, hmm, is this better than Battle of the Belts? And it's not. It's not. And I'll tell you why. But with that, this is a great match, and uh, I think I think the perspective. I think the Battle of the Belts to me. If you've ever, and I know you've seen it, Jeff, and we've talked about it probably a dozen times. It is, I think, maybe one of the best televised matches of the 1980s in this country. And I think what actually really hurts that match is the finish. Not really a fan of the finish. This match, technically, it's perfect. There's nothing wrong with it. The only thing that I think hurts it in comparison to the other two matches is the length of time. This match goes, what, about 25 minutes or so? Yeah, in that ballpark. Yeah, we're, you know, and again, that, that first battle of the belts was just a shade run under an hour. So, you know, it gave both guys a chance. But with that, if we're not comparing all three matches and this is a standalone match, this match is absolutely unbelievable. And look, Flair at this stage, Flair and the stories are let, you know, Terry Teller tells the best story. Terry Taylor telling the story on the Mid-South DVD of Ric Flair walking into the dressing room, drunk, hungover, says, I have to go lay down or I won't be able to work. Goes in the dressing room, lays down and takes a nap, wakes up 25 minutes later. I don't know what the length of time is. Give me a cup of coffee. Give me a cup of coffee, goes out and has essentially one of the best matches of his life. And it goes an hour, right? So. Flair is, you know, we can we can rag on him all we want at this stage about the legacy and et cetera. But in the 80s, Ric Flair was it. Look, there was no bigger fans than than Jeff and myself and all the newsletter marks. Uh, back uh, allow in the me day. just to interject real quick, Barry, as Certainly. I went uh, very quickly and did some solid research. <clears throat> uh, I noticed that uh, on my top 100 of the 80s, when we got into the top 20, Flair versus Barry Windham, uh, January 20th, 1987 in Fayetteville, yes. number 15 on my list of the top 100. And Flair versus Barry Windham, February 14th, 1986 in Orlando, number seven. And where did today's match rank? Uh, today's match was not on my top 100 because I think at the time I had never seen it. <clears throat> so anyway. Well, I think part well, of Well, no, actually, I didn't say that because I was actually here at this match live. For whatever reason, I did not include this match. Go figure. And I'll tell you why. Because apparently in the little bit of research I did this morning when I was watching the match and then one to find out, you know, whatever the stories were that went with it, this match was, I guess, it was originally broadcast. And then it it didn't make its way. I, I don't know. Something happened, but there was a handheld version that apparently was extremely popular. And then the commercial version, which is, I guess, what we're virgin? watching. Like, commercial virgin? What? Commercial virgin. Did you ever fly commercial virgin? Airlines? I did. Yes. It's this is uh, I think this is uh, like th- this was maybe a. Uh, a non broadcast version in a sense, only because there was no commentary on this match. Yeah, I, I think this might have been the proverbial bootleg version. Yeah, yeah, that's you know, what I'm so. And I know you like it when it doesn't have commentary. It's a nice little change up. It is a nice little change up, but uh, so that's interesting. So, Battle of the Belts number seven at fifteen Fayetteville. coming in, coming in Fayetteville, and then after I guess you give your review, I'd like to hear where you would place this. Hypothetically, of course, you've already done your top one hundred of the eighties thirty years ago, but I would still be curious to see where all this found in. But so this is uh, 
this, obviously this is a great match. Barry Windham at this stage, and I think it's that period, maybe 85 through 89, maybe 90. Barry Wyndham was as good as anybody, and Flair was at the top of his game. So if you put these two together, you just know you are going to get some kind of magic with that. At the 7.05 mark, it's roughly 7.05 to like 7.10, Wyndham does something that I never saw him do, but I think I saw Steamboat do it during a Flair match. He's bouncing off the ropes and is looking at – and Flair's on the ground, and he literally falls to the mat in a headlock. And get, do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And I don't know if I'm describing that correctly because that was so bizarre, but he, he literally hits the ropes, stops, looks at Flair, who's on the mat and falls directly into a headlock. And I just thought that was super cool. Flair hits a move off the top rope and guess what? Exclamation point. Flair hits a fucking move off the top rope. He climbs the ropes and instead of the usual spot where he does the back body drop or gets, uh, tossed off the top rope, he does a cross body. Now what's interesting Wyndham. is that based on everything I've heard from Ric Flair, Bret Hart is the only guy that does the same spots in every single match anyway. Well, so, and I'll tell you the funny thing about that years ago when I was, and this was before I guess uh, the discussion, maybe not, maybe it was, but now everybody knows Flair does because that's, we discussed that. But the first person that I think ever truly said that to me was Paul Jones, Paul Jones, who didn't love Ric Flair. And Paul had a bit of envious jealousy. Uh, he had a side to him, but he said to me, I was praising Flair and he said, you know, I, it's great that you like Flair. I forget. He probably said, I don't know what you're fucking talking about knowing Paul, but he basically said, uh, Flair does the same spots every move, every match. It's, you know, he goes, uh, he was very opinionated about it and he says, Flair does these spots great, maybe better than anybody in the history. But if you see a Ric Flair match, you're basically seeing all Ric Flair matches. So there's a bit of truth to that. But with that, you know, the old adage too, Flair could have a great match with a broomstick. He could, right? I mean, Flair was just always good. So I thought that was interesting. He hits that move off the top rope. It's a cross body. Of course, Wyndham rolls through it and covers Flair for the two count. This match, which I thought was interesting, according to cagematch.net, is one of Ric Flair's 10 best world title matches. So I, I thought that was interesting. It's like, wow, wait a minute. You know, you're, you're putting this match in, in there. And I thought that was interesting, but Ric Flair had a great quote regarding Barry Windham that I liked. And I, I, Ric Flair, you know, again, he's a, these days, he's certainly a polarizing individual, but he was a Barry Windham fan. And he said he was six, five, 250 pound Ricky Steamboat. He was so natural, so good. We never talked about anything. We had gate, great, we had, we also had gate crimp chemistry. We had great chemistry. I wish his name was remembered in more high regard because Barry Wyndham was one of the greatest of all time. One of the greatest. And I'll use that word for Barry Wyndham all day long. So I like that. A 6'5, 255 pound Ricky Steamboat. Well, I'll just, uh, I'll just interject this thought. It's my belief. And this is strictly my belief because I know there are a lot of people out there that are Ric Flair. I'm going to just say this, that are Ric Flair apologists. Sure. Nothing that Ric Flair ever does or ever says, uh, is, is, is wrong because he's Ric Flair. And you said it during the eighties, everybody fucking loved Ric Flair. Okay. Absolutely. But as time goes on 
and Ric Flair continues to open his mouth. Ric Flair, uh, and I'm not trying to cancel Ric Flair, but he just, he, he becomes more of an embarrassment to his own legacy, in my opinion. Okay. So Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat in 1989 was absolutely epic. It was, you know, three of the greatest matches in the history of the wrestling industry, not just the, the year or the decade, but like literally in wrestling history. That being said, I'm not sure that at some point in 1989, uh, or I, uh, let me say in 1988, late 88 into early 89, before he took his little sabbatical, that Barry Windham wasn't better than either Flair or Steamboat. He was unbelievable. Ponytailed Barry Windham, yeah. like when he fought Bigelow and when he was having that series, he was unfucking believable. And we, you know, you and I both, uh, along with everybody that was in Florida, had seen Barry Windham when he was that skinny kid with one fucking eyebrow. And, Remember that? Yeah. you know, yeah. And he weighed like probably <laughs> maybe 200 pounds, if that. Yep. Uh, and he was great at taking bumps. He was great at getting sympathy. But you just, you know, and he, he would have great matches. But what he evolved into, you know, like less than 10 years later was like, holy shit, this guy's at a next, uh, just another fucking level. I'm not sure that he wasn't better than Flair and Steamboat were in 89. That's how good Barry Windham fucking was at that point. So if Flair said that about Barry Windham, that's, uh, you know, that's completely understandable. And I definitely would give that a, 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 a thumbs up and say, uh, he's not wrong. No, and, and uh, to your, that point, Jeff, you'd be a hundred percent correct. Check congratulations to Mr. and Mrs. Spiker on their new child. See how I managed to seamlessly weave that uh, that little announcement into the. Uh, <laughs> that was great, and I don't know how, but in, on that note, if you're listening, and let's say you're not part of the Facebook group, and as we always say, Jeff, why aren't you? Why aren't you? Why at this stage, it's it's an extension of the podcast. It's almost the same thing, but it's uh, you just get additional content. But one of our most valued and prized listeners and a good friend to us and a good friend to uh, everybody within what we call the brothership, Chris Spiker, his lovely wife, the doctor, Christine Spiker, were married, I guess, about a year and a half ago, maybe. I don't know the exact date. And with that, this past weekend, the birth of their first child, a young son named JJ. I got to tell you, Jeff, and I'm sure you saw the multitude of photos that were out there. This you mean was he posted a- more than just one? Oh, they, and you gotta remember, you've got a proud grandfather in Max Spiker, who, uh. Max, the, I thought he was the great grandfather. I the, could never keep track. <laughs> Mac is gonna come looking for you at this stage, but, uh. He's I, gonna, he's gonna knock off Greenbaum. <laughs> I don't know who Greenbaum, I don't know what that is, uh. I got I'm a story sorry, there. Toenail fungus. Yeah, and I got a story there for you, by the way, about that, but, uh, we, we could talk off air, but I, you know, from from Jeff, myself, and Sweet Lou to the entire Spiker family, Chris, Christine, and Mac. Just and JJ. And JJ. Who, who as been, Lou said, named after JJ Dillon, nice wrestling which component. Is pretty cool that, uh, you know, you do that. Because I'm thinking if I have another kid, his name is Jumbo, right? Yeah, there you go. Or Patrick. Yeah. Or Patrick. <laughs> I was going to go with Jumbo. It's the ambiguity, uh, it being it's ambiguous. ambiguous about. It's being ambiguous, right. The ambiguity about the penis size versus my favorite wrestler. Exactly. I was just going to call him Jumbo. But, uh, yeah, so that nice you crowbar that in because uh, I had a little note here to, to bring that up as well. So continue, Jeff. Back to the flare. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, yes. so, yeah, uh, yeah. 
But uh, you done? Oh yeah, yeah, I'm done. Okay, so as I mentioned, this match was from the Crockett Cup in Baltimore. It was actually there. Uh, live and in living Talk color. about that for a minute. Interrupt you again, but so what was it like being there live? And you were there with a group of like hard, like Jamie Ward was probably there, right? Uh, well, Jamie Ward was probably sitting behind me because quite frankly, I had a little notoriety, so I got bumped to the front row. Uh, nice. but anyway, uh, no, I, I think, uh, I want to say Flaherty went up there with me. Uh, and we had, uh, the Greensboro boys there and, uh, I can't remember if the Melts was there, probably McAdam wormed his way in, probably, sure. you know, uh, glommed a ticket off somebody and didn't pay for it. One of those kind of things. But, uh, yeah, no, the Baltimore arena, great sight lines, uh, because I think it was maybe like an indoor soccer stadium or something like that or arena. And, and so it provided like a, a really good setup for, uh, for a wrestling card. And I, I like that. I always remember that about it. So I have a question for you. All right. Now that we've kind of managed to work both, uh, those names in there, who'd you find to be a better opponent for Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat or Barry Windham? Ooh, and I, I, so that was something I thought about earlier and I was going to try let's, to approach Let's put this that. in there. When, when you're considering those two guys, yep. let's talk about match buildup, uh, you know, the match itself, the promos that went into it. Uh, because there are, you know, certain things that you can, uh, take points away from guys. You know, let's be honest. Ricky Steamboat was a tremendous baby face in mid Atlantic in the late seventies and into the early eighties when he came back, you know, and, and he was fine in the WWF, but when, oh, Bonnie and the kids started becoming part of the act, you know, that, that just, uh, you know, with all due respect to his son and everything, uh, you know, uh, the wife, uh, you know, putting herself in, you know, as part of the thing. So she would get a new evening gown out of it, apparently, uh, you know, or for whatever reason, but, uh, that just, that just killed his baby face momentum. No man. And, you know, and Ric Flair was, you know, the guy that had uh, all these women on his arms was wearing the great looking suits flying in Lear jets. And yeah, we're going to boo him so we can cheer the guy. That's a family man. Yeah. So that so takes points uh, away, points away from Ricky on that. Yeah. That was Marty steamboat, right? <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Uh, So, shit. Probably Steamboat by a slight edge just based off of this once-in-a-lifetime bizarre type of chemistry that they had together. It's It was one of those things that, you know, sometimes shit works and sometimes it doesn't. And you could sit here and try to figure out why. There was magic with Steamboat Flair. It was a chemistry thing. I, in some ways, prefer the Wyndham matches because of the three wrestlers. Wyndham is my favorite. But I am hard-pressed to take anything away from what Steamboat and Flair did because it is. It's highly unique, and every one of their matches was good. I, honestly, I could say that, uh, you know, oh, my, uh, my answer is, uh, Ricky Steamboat without question. And then I wake up tomorrow and I'd say, oh, no, I say it's definitely Barry Wyndham. There's no doubt yeah. about it. And then uh, a day later, uh, I'm back to Steamboat. It's a, uh, you know, the, it, it's not like if you pick one, it's a wrong answer, you know, so. Oh, absolutely. Um, I noticed, uh, Barry, Jimmy Suzuki shooting ringside. Uh, it's always good to see, uh, Jimmy Suzuki there. Uh, Gary Michael Capetta doing the ring introductions. So I did notice there was a, uh, you know, very rare that you can actually spot a mistake. There was a drop toe hole that got fucked up in this match. And uh, because he, uh, I can't remember if it was Flair or Steamboat that missed it, but they actually, uh, whoever it was, went out of the ring, came back in, and they did the spot and got it right, which was kind of interesting. Uh, they did the, uh, oh, the inevitable blind ref spot uh, where uh, then, uh, but I like the fact that uh, Barry Windham, 
grabs Tommy Young as Flair is holding onto the ropes and Tommy is like trying to see if Barry's going to concede. Barry grabs Tommy Young and literally throws him over to Ric Flair so that he catches Ric Flair uh, holding onto the ropes. I thought that was a really interesting spot, Barry. Yeah, it was too. And there were several uh, really great spots with that. So I, I liked your hypothetical with Wyndham, getting back to Wyndham. Could, and, and I know all the stories, Wyndham was busy chasing tail and didn't want to commit to, uh, full-time schedules and would drop out. Could Wyndham have made a long-term credible champion for the NWA 85-86? Uh, I think. And I'm if, not talking transitional for a month. No, I, for I, a I year. think, I think if Barry Wyndham had not gone to the WWE, I think Dusty absolutely planned on that happening. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I just, you know, I have no way of knowing actually, but you know, that's my belief because that, you know, the trajectory, you know, uh, once Wyndham left, that's essentially what Matt Magnum like just took his place right. and Magnum became the guy that was going to be the, uh, the next world champion. And, you know, and, you know, if, because Flair is just such an anomaly. I mean, Flair was at a point in 1989 where eh, he must've been like, if he was, if he was 40 or if he wasn't, he was like within a year or so. And it would, it would be a time when usually you'd start to kind of wind down a guy's in the ring career. But Rick was such an anomaly that he was nowhere close to being done at that point. You know, uh, went on for what another 15 stinking years yeah. before he became Freddie Blassie essentially in the ring. Um, but, uh, let's see. We, we got the, uh, the Tommy Young, Ric Flair push spot, which is in literally Every single match that Ric Flair ever did where Tommy Young was the ref for they did yep. the push spot. Uh, so I did come up with a question that I wanted to ask you, uh, Ric Flair in the ring, in his prime. Tell me of these three things. But, and, and I say, let's take out of the equation the whole that Ric Flair could make his opponent look great because okay. we know that was a, a tremendous attribute of Flair's. Okay. Of these three things, what do you think was Ric Flair's best quality of these three things? His stamina? His pacing or his timing in the ring? Ooh. His timing. So the stamina is uh it's something he could have gotten great stamina if he wasn't a professional wrestler. So I, I would disc I would only say I would discount or remove that because again, it, look, if he was an athlete, he could have you know, if Flair could be on a I included that because, hours. you know, like you told the Terry Taylor story and here Rick went out yeah, yeah. No, after and, being hung over and wrestled sixty minutes of a great match, you know. Yeah, so. no, and that's and that's that's a fair point because it's incredible. I do think his timing though, and I think if you watch Flair, it's uh you you could learn, but again, he was a natural. There was something that just truly clicked for him. And there are certain guys like that. You know, Kurt Angle was a guy. And again, that's not even a fair comparison because here was a guy that had done, you know, so much amateur and collegiate in Olympic wrestling. But Kurt Angle right out of the gate was a star. Dick Slater right out of the gate. Dick Slater was, uh, in my opinion, Dick Slater progressively got worse in his career because the first couple of years, this guy was just unbelievable. I don't know if Flair, because I've only seen one or two matches from like his AWA early days when he was heavy and all that. So I, I don't think it was there, but his timing was just, it's unnatural the way he could do it. But you do bring up a fair point with his conditioning and his cardio. So uh, one of the things I loved was when they did a spot towards, it was towards the latter part of the match where they do a false finish and 
Flair puts his leg uh, over the ropes as he goes to count Barry Windham, you know, for the pinfall. And Tommy Young's facial expression as he's looking and he has this was his foot on the ropes when I counted the fall look on his face. And he has this expression of being completely torn and but he wants to be fair. And it's one of the reasons why Tommy Young's really one of the great officials in the history of the sport bear. Ah, so I have, I have mixed feelings on Tommy Young and I gotta say today, it was, you mentioned the spot about the, the shoving and the pushing. Flair does a flop. He goes down. And as I was reading reviews online, they mentioned this spot and somebody, I guess it was on YouTube because then somebody commented and said, watching Tommy Young work with Ric Flair was my childhood. He must be the greatest ref of all time. And while Tommy brought a lot to the table in many ways. He's almost the Ric Flair of wrestling referees. And I say that with respect, but to that, if you've seen one Tommy Young refereeing match, you know, one match where he's officiating, you've seen a lot of them. Like he was, he was a guy that had to get in his spots. I'm guessing his spots got over. Uh, I don't know why, but I, for me, there's a little, and boy, you ready for the hate that's going to come my way, Jeff? You ready? I'm ready. There's a little bit of Tommy Young and Aubrey Edwards, and I don't mean in a sexual way. I mean in that if you watch the fact that Tommy Tommy sometimes goes a little overboard, he's a little uh, overly dramatic with some of his exaggerated gestures. And my God, Aubrey Edwards has set the you know she's doing backflips like. Well, let's put it this way though. Sure. And I'm gonna I'm gonna do a a counterpoint to that. Okay. And I got no special love for Aubrey Edwards. Okay. Uh, is it Aubrey or Audrey or what, what is it? I think it's Aubrey. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. it's like the David Gates and bread song. Uh, remember that? That's a very obscure reference. Anyway, um, I saw something posted recently. I don't know if it was Howard Baum posted it or somebody else where they, they talk and like immediately everyone, because let's be honest, there are people in our group that literally the, uh, the group could, uh, cure cancer. And there would be some sort of, uh, no, no matter if they had done that, they would still shit on AEW because <laughs> they just don't fucking like AEW. And that's you it. Know, I, I'm not an apologist for AEW. If I think something is wrong, I'll be honest. I didn't watch the pay-per-view because quite frankly, they didn't do enough to compel me to want to go out and spend money on it. Okay. But there are people in that group, uh, in that company that they don't like. And, uh, Aubrey, Audrey, whatever her name is is one of them. And so anytime someone will say, oh, what about this? Uh, Audrey? Oh, she's the worst <laughs> in the fucking history of the business. She's worse than Gilberto Roman. She's worse than, you know, whoever the fucking worst referee in the history of the business is. Gilberto so, Roman. Yes, you somebody, right. somebody needs to fucking throw out the fact that this uh, Edwards lady, uh, her facial expressions are wrong. She's too exuberant and they feel the need to shit on her primarily, I think, because she fucking referees for AEW. And I'm just fucking, you know, really just if you don't like it, don't fucking watch it. You know, why are you watching some show just so you can fucking shit on it afterwards? If you don't like it, don't fucking watch it. It's very simple. There are people literally that do reviews of every AEW show yes. that's ever out there. And I don't even need to look and see what they're going to say because I know they're going to shit on the product. Why are you fucking continuing to to post what you think about this show if everyone knows you're not going to like it? 
You know, I don't watch the WWE. Do you know why? Because I don't necessarily like the product. Even though everyone says Roman Reigns is the greatest fucking wrestler that WWE has ever fucking produced. Well, great. But I'm not into that product, so I don't watch it. Because if I watched it, I come on here and go, oh, you know, Barry, I really don't like WWE. Let me explain why. And that'd be kind of fucking boring at some point, you know? Anyway, I got on a fucking tangent there. Well, but you so, made a lot of sense with that. But, right? but, you know, I don't know if she's horrible or not, to be honest with you. I don't spend a lot of time fucking worrying about whether or not, you know, Edwards is is doing, and I'm saying Edwards because I can never remember if her name's Audrey or Aubrey, and I want to Aubrey, Aubrey. Uh, so I don't want to fucking, you know, review a, a match from AEW or talking about the latest thing that happened on AEW and say, oh, by the way, let me point out uh, Aubrey Edwards' uh, facial expression. Who fucking cares? Who really fucking cares? Well, and people that okay. do care about this, you're spending way too much fucking time worrying about this. Anyway, my rant's over. Now, Barry, getting back. Wow. Young. Wow. So I, yeah, I don't know where I fucking got off on that. Yeah, where did that uh, come from? <laughs> Jeez. You know, so, uh, but you bang and Aubrey Edwards. Yeah, what, what's going on over my here? My God, I'm cheating on Mrs. Valley. All right. But, um, Tommy Young, it, I, I always thought he did a fine job. Did he do a little too much in the facial reactions? Uh, was he a little too exuberant at times? Eh, yeah, that's a fair point. But I don't think that makes him a bad referee. He took good bumps. Uh, you know, if the biggest complaint you could have about Tommy Young is that he and Ric Flair did the same fucking spot literally in every match that they ever worked where they were in the ring together. That's a fair point. The, do I think that makes him not one of the top officials I've ever seen? No. And right, that's the end of that. Let me ask you a question. If you've seen Wake one... of Fiji water for the working man after my rant. Wait, hold on. I got to grab some water, too. Uh the if you I, I just I feel when so let's talk about Tommy Young before we get on to is it Aubrey or Audrey whatever her fucking okay name. Uh, so Tommy Young I think he'll always be considered I think from a, a standpoint in the NWA he's always going to be the guy when it comes to being a referee my issue with Tommy Young and there were times Tommy was very good is Tommy always had to get his spots in and make the match about himself and when when you watch professional wrestling I know for me. I always hated the referee spots. When I was a kid growing up, you could go to the matches and you could damn damn well sure be 100% that this was going to occur if there was a midget match on the card or a woman's match taking place. Somehow there was going to be a referee spot. and It was it happened every single time. And uh, with the midgets, it, it always turned into comedy, which is what the match was. But I was never really a fan of that. And I just feel that with Tommy, he spent way too much time. I like, for me, a guy like Stu Schwartz, who, again, I think he was all but retired by like 1980 or 82, somewhere right around there. Stu was a guy, first off, that looked like he could officiate a match. He was well put together, was in great shape. That, to me, is a referee. You bring up Gilberto Roman. I don't know, five, four, 250 pounds, and you'd watch him. Or Bronco Lubitsch, who was clinically dead when he was in the ring. So it, all those, to me, are it's all well, a mess. I, I tell you what, let's let's make a comparison there. Okay. Uh, and, and and you make valid points because, you know, the old argument, much like uh, in baseball or in football when you were talking about an official, uh, the best officials are the ones you never see or you never hear about until, you know, like it's over uh, because they've done a good job. And that's why people hate certain umpires in, in baseball. They're the ones that are always, you know, kind of trying to get themselves over Angel Hernandez, those kind of guys. And, you know, a, a guy that people made similar complaints about 
out in world class was David Manning, that David Manning had to kind of get in his spots where it was pretty much designed to get David Manning over. You know, like David Manning always managed to grab the house mic for some reason. Oh, let me tell you something. Is this while David Manning was booking as well? Right. Well, I, I don't know, but I'm sure that had something to do with it. And, yep. you know, quite honestly, the point you make about David, uh, about um, Tommy Young, absolutely fair points. OK. And Stu uh, was not a guy that was going to be, uh, Hey, let's make this where I get my spot in. And then before you even mentioned Stu, I was like, Oh, Barry's going to bring up Stu. At some point. <laughs> Cause I know that's your guy. You that's know, my guy. Yeah. And, and you know, like, let's talk about Fonzie. Okay. Love Fonzie. Sure. Was fun. No. And Fonzie was a great official too. Was Fonzie a guy that before, of course, he became the heel, uh, guy up in, in ECW. Do you think Fonzie was a guy in Florida in fairness? Was Fonzie a guy that you never noticed, or was Fonzie a guy that kind of got his stuff in? Somewhere in the middle. Uh, he was initially. I promise when, we're going to get back to the flare window. Yeah, here. initially when Fonzie first started, which I think was 1980, right around there, Fonzie was a guy that did not get his spots in. As it progressed a little bit, and I think especially towards the end of the decade, there were moments where Fonzie was getting spots in. But I always thought, actually, I always thought he was a pretty good referee. Really, no, my, so he was a good yeah. referee. I liked him, yeah. Yeah, my criticism with Aubrey Edwards, and look, I, I, I agree with you. Nobody has spent more time defending AEW than probably you and I. And even now, like – I think AEW deserves a lot of criticism. There's a lot there that you can criticize. They've, they've but. De- I, I will say, again, I interrupt. I apologize. No, uh, yeah, if I'm going to be fair about my uh, thoughts on AEW, AEW's momentum absolutely has stalled. There's no question about that. And let's be honest. And really, I don't think it had anything to do with the whole fucking CM Punk, Young Bucks. It didn't. It didn't. You know, no, it was stalling before then. And, you know, yeah. you and I have both pointed out that, they will start pushing somebody and they're like, oh, yeah, here's a guy that's got a rocket strapped to their ass. And then all of a sudden, nah, what happened to that guy? You know, and the other thing is, in fairness to, you know, to making my point, there are guys that have suffered injuries, you know, like uh, uh, Adam Cole is uh, apparently still not even close to coming back because of his concussion situation. Uh, Adam Page uh, has a, a serious concussion issue where, according to what I read in the Observer, is not even close to returning, or maybe he's closer than Adam Cole, but he's still been out. So, you know, when you have these guys that have injuries, you know, that, that are, you know, uh, uh, out of action for a significant period of time. So Mega, like him or not, was out like a year because of a bunch of injuries that had kind of built up on top of them one, you know, one another. So, you know, they have, uh, injuries that have happened in the locker room that have kind of stalled momentum for certain programs, you know, but then, you know, they have, uh, I think that Tony wants to be such a, uh, uh, a well thought of, geez, a great guy kind of leader. Sometimes part of being a leader is saying no. Sometimes being a leader is kicking people in the ass when they need it and not, and being perceived as uh, an asshole, if you will, you, you have to accept that. Uh, you can't be everyone's buddy and everyone's friend because then they're going to look at you and go, Hey, guy's such a fucking mark, man. Let's put one over on him. Because that's what the boys in the locker room are going to do. And I think that's happened in some cases. And he's been, uh, kind of, uh, used by some of the guys in the locker room. And so their momentum is definitely stalled. Anyway, I, I jumped in and, uh, Kind of stole your thought there, Barry. Please continue. No, but and that's and that's basically where I was going. There's a look. There's so much talent in AEW, but we're we're seeing 
what appears to be the same talent every week. So what about the other 40 guys that we don't see on a weekly basis? Where are they? And there's so many of them and it just doesn't make sense. And to feature, unless, you know, unless these are the guys that are selling all the merch and maybe that's it. Maybe this is how Tony dictates who gets on television by who sells the most merch. Well, but know. if you, then again, a counter argument, sure. if you're on TV, literally every single week, Without fail, you're you're probably are going to sell more merch than a guy that's on TV once every six or seven weeks, you know, and then does one of the backstage comments, you know. So uh, absolutely, and it's uh, it just it's bizarre to me because uh, it it, at this stage of AEW, which puts us a little over three years, it appears that there's just a shitload of money that's been wasted, and there's no. The long-term direction of booking appears to be about 10 days. Like that's how far out they appear. It, what they do today in two weeks won't make a bit of difference. So and, I'm hopeful you know, that they can turn this around though, Jeff. Yeah. And, and honestly, one of the things that, uh, that I have always said positively about Vince McMahon as a promoter and a booker is Vince McMahon always knew what his long-term goal was, you know, like, yep. uh, it, May, he would begin planning for next year's WrestleMania because that was his biggest show. And I think uh, Tony does not have – you're absolutely correct. I don't think he has any uh, idea of what's going to happen next month, much less you know a year from now. And that's to his detriment because if he doesn't know, you know what's going to happen a year from now in the company, then uh, you know it, it's – it's not good. He needs to uh, come up with some sort of long-term game plan. If his long-term game plan is MJF, that's great. And, and take that and, you know, give him the ball and let him run with it. But, you know, if you're planning, uh, you know, like uh, two weeks down the road, okay, this is uh, the change. Where, you know, you're essentially Memphis with not as good uh, ideas, you know, like because Memphis always had crazy fucking ideas that would bring the people back. Uh, you know, they, they obviously have a solid base of people based on what I see in the observer for what their numbers are. Uh, this is where somebody will chime in as we're listening or listening and go, Oh, uh, Dave Meltzer's not a journalist. How can you believe what he's anyway? Uh, so Dave reports on what the numbers are every single week. And there's always a specific number, you know, that's like usually just below a million or something like that, give or take. And, you know, so, you know, they have a solid, a fan base, but of course, what they want to do is they want to get more fans. That's not really incredibly, uh, you know, uh, thought provoking on my part, but that, you know, they want to attract the people that aren't watching the show now, give them a reason to watch. And if that's MJF, great, then run with it. Uh, if that doesn't work, then you need to figure out what the next plan is going to be, but you need to have an idea. And then we're going to get back to the Wyndham Flair finish. I promise you need to have an idea of, uh, this time, six months, nine months from now. What are you going to do? And I really think he needs to come up with one show, uh, you know, uh, one pay-per-view and say, this is going to be my version of WrestleMania. This is something we're going to run every single year, uh, whether it's April or July or September, whatever month you pick. You know, I don't give a shit, but pick one match or, or one card that's going to be your WrestleMania, your Starcade, your Parade of Champions, your Wrestle Rock. Wow, that's a really old reference there. Uh, you know, your November Rain for all you ECW marks. So, you know, pick a show and run that show every year in the same month, at least. It doesn't have to be the same date, but, you know, in the same month. So that's what everything leads to. Everything builds up to that. Now then, let's finish this match. So, 
Uh, as I said, they do the false finish spot where Tommy's uh, anguished and, you know, he, he can't figure out what's going to do. Uh, there's two pinfall uh, uh, attempts afterwards. It's really funny because after Flair gets his legs over the uh, the bottom rope and uh, it saves him from being pinned, BW tries to pin him twice more and doesn't hook the leg. That's, you know, you can't, you can't win a match without hooking the leg. That's what Gordon Sully used to always teach us. Yep. Anyway, 26 minutes in, Flair reverses the roll up, pulls on the tights, wins the match, leaves the Crockett Cup as the champ. He's walking back to the dressing room and I pondered the question, Barry Rose, did Ric Flair ever have a world championship match where he did not leave the ring limping? Hmm. He's always selling some sort of leg injury. As he walks away from ringside, he's always dragging one of his feet like, oh, I got to walk off this leg injury. It's something I've noticed. That's interesting, too. I, I don't think I've ever paid attention, but I now, going forward, absolutely will. Okay. Just like uh, AEW referees will start paying attention. Oh. Barry, it has been a hot tick since we've offered up some Florida man or not to the beloved listener. Are you ready, my man? This time I'm ready. I say bring it on. You say, don't sing it, fucking bring it. Is that what you're saying? That's it. Let's do it. Barry, the first headline. Man upset over flight goes on carjacking spree, causing multiple crashes, Barry. Authorities say a man who was upset over a canceled flight went on a carjacking spree. Police say that 20-year-old suspect, John Green, which sounds like one of those fake names, Barry, carjacked two people and attempted to carjack more drivers. The investigation started Friday morning when uh, the uh, airport division was informed about an upset traveler at a ticket counter. The passenger was reportedly upset because he could not buy a same-day t- uh, ticket. Passenger then caused a disruption at the airport. By the way, the police love when they uh, cause disruptions at the airport. That You'll never get in trouble for that, Barry. Uh, Oh, they said the man left the area, found a vehicle at the airport's passenger pickup area, forced the driver out, and stole the vehicle. The driver was not injured. The man then drove the stolen SUV before crashing into two cars. He got out, attempted to carjack another woman. However, the woman in her seatbelt fought back. Good for you. The man returned to the stolen SUV, crashed it again for a third time. Apparently, this guy was a really shitty driver, too, Barry. After that, the man carjacked a Dodge Durango before crashing into multiple vehicles. I'm going to guess the aforementioned John Green has some explaining to do to the judge, Barry Rose, Florida man or not. That's a tough one right there, but I am going to say this, this story took place not in Florida. This, this took place in Ohio. Salt Lake City, Utah. Oh. So right. you do not, you know, because you decided to guess which state it was. I so did. So now, no, no, you don't yeah. get credit for it. Nothing. Next, next Shit. question or next uh, story, Barry. <clears throat> Man getting intimate with partner in a nightclub stall attacks cleaner who interrupted them. Uh, the uh, coitus interruptus, if you will, oh, Barry. Oh, yeah. A frisky club patron. I like the uh, the the verbiage here. Uh, of course, I will say this is a New York Post uh, offering up the story. So, you know, there's going to be some creative writing in there. A frisky club patron bashed a cleaner who caught him engaged in an intimate act inside a disabled toilet. Uh-huh. Police say uh, Billy Dean Fallon repeatedly punched the cleaner after bursting out of the female disabled stall uh, on January 20th. 
Fallon uh, admitted assault, occasioning bodily harm. I've never heard of that charge. Uh, the uh, closed circuit TV played in court, showed him throwing a, fur, a flurry of punches at the cleaner who had been knocking on the toilet door for a few minutes. Hey, hey, lady, come on, get out of here. I got to clean the stall. This one, this took place in Florida. This took place in uh, Port Ritchie, Florida. Well, you're close, Barry. All right. Queensland, Australia. You're just right few, around the corner. You're just a few miles away. Damn. So, uh, yeah, good stuff. Uh, okay, next story. Barry, uh, always a good news source. TMZ, Barry. <clears throat> Airport bust. Gun stuffed in raw chicken. Get a load of this, Barry. TSA just stops foul play. Oh. See what they did there? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, TSA agents aren't pulling anyone's wing. Again, the creative writing. After confiscating a raw chicken, one that turned out to be fully loaded. Boy, they're, they're doing their work here, Bear. Uh, TSA posted the raw crime scene Monday, showing the offending bird stuffed with a handgun after it was seized at the airport. The bird seemed to be completely packaged with the firearm wrapped up tight in a plastic and then jammed into the bird a pretty dangerous spin on the whole turducken craze. <laughs> Nice. This is this is pretty good stuff. I got to say. Oh yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, oh, they go on to say uh, chickens raw or cooked are okay to travel with passengers according to TSA guidelines, but obviously firearms inside said chicken very ain't gonna fly. <laughs> very humorous. Very rose Florida man or not? Oh, let's see. So you got two stories, neither taking place in Florida yet. However, this one. This one took place in Florida. Fort Lauderdale International Airport. I am very familiar with it. Uh, very amusing story there, Barry. Uh, let's see here. We're going to go here. So, Barry, the next story, again, coming to us courtesy of our friends at the New York Post. Woman pleads guilty after smacking neighbor with a 10-pound meat stick at Walmart. First of all. Wow. When I saw this story, any story that has a headline, including the phrase meat stick, oh, I yeah. think that's right up our alley, Barry. That's, uh-huh. yeah. A woman admitted to walloping her estranged neighbor with a 10-pound log of ground beef. Mm, that's some good eating, Barry, mm. before running into her at a Walmart, prosecutor said. Monika Garner, 27, pleaded no contest to disorderly conduct in connection with the May uh, 2021 attack. She was sentenced to a 30-day suspended jail term and a year of probation. Uh, let's see. Garner was shopping with her son when she saw Precious Jackson and her daughter at the megastore. The suspect confronted Jackson at the in the potato chip aisle. This keeps getting better. <laughs> pulled down her face mask and attempted to spit on her before threatening to beat her and her daughter up. Uh, by the way, the daughter, seven years old. Oh. Being, yeah. Uh, she then took a $22 meat log out of her cart and struck her with it a couple of times in the face. The victim apparently had gotten a restraining order against the suspect when she lived downstairs from her in a duplex. As she told police, she was under the impression the order of protection had expired. Uh, she was initially charged with assault and violating a restraining order. By the way, let me just reiterate. I've said it before on this show, Barry. A restraining order is a piece of paper. Uh, and so Barry Rose, Florida woman or not? 
Yeah, that's a shame with the uh, restraining order too. Literally, that is what it is. It's just a piece yeah. of paper, and it's it, it doesn't appear. It doesn't seem to stop a whole lot. Uh, I, I mean, there are some people out there that they'll say, "Okay, uh, enough. You're right. Uh, you got the restraining order. I don't want any more trouble with the police." Yada yada. However, the ones that are like, uh, let's just say, not in their proper mindset, right? It, they're going to just fucking ignore that. So anyway, Barry Rose, mm. Florida woman or not? I'm going to say no, this did not take place in Florida. This took place in Ohio, South Euclid, which I believe is a suburb of Cleveland. Oh. Because uh, a former Vikings running back, Robert Smith, a former resident of Euclid. Uh, Let's see. I remember that from his high school days. Let's see. I think I've got a couple more for you, Barry. Drunk driver tried to persuade police her dog was driving the car that crashed into a bus stop next to a playground there. Woman who drove down a footpath thinking it was a road while she was intoxicated later told police her dog had been driving the car. But Ozzy, a good driver, is he, Barry? Excellent driver, yes. Passed all the tests and everything. The vision test for the dogs. They just, you know, because they've got such good eyesight, they usually just ace that. Uh, let's see. Uh, Melissa Johansson, 47, attempted to reverse out of the car park. Uh, let's see. Four times before police noticed her drunken state and phoned the cops. Johansson did manage to reverse. And in her fifth attempt, she began driving down a footpath before colliding with a bus, st- a bus stop just yards away from a children's play area. Oh, my God. Barry, that would have been serious. And, of course, we would not have talked about it. But right. Barry Rose, Florida woman or not. This this is Florida. This has got Florida written all over it. Barry Rose, I can tell you, you are 100% wrong. Oh, This is the UK Swansea, which I'm sure right now, one of our UK listeners going, I can't fucking believe you don't know. I'm not doing Irish, I think. Uh, you don't know where that is. Uh, but no, I don't know where Swansea is. So uh, anyone that can help us out on that little particular issue, we would appreciate. Barry, I found that one last story for Florida Man or Not. The headline reads, Doctor says the man with the world's largest penis is lying. Imagine that, Barry, a guy lying about it. Oh, come on. So uh, a a doctor who examined Roberto Cabrera's penis has settled the score, saying it isn't as big as reported. Cabrera made headlines for claiming to have the world's largest penis measuring in at, Barry, what do you think? What did he say? Or, or what's the World's largest measuring in at 13.7 inches. Uh, is, is that Barry Rose? Uh, oh, yeah, well, that's uh, well, flaccid. That's correct. Well, yeah. of course. Measuring in at 19 inches wow. long, Barry. That is one big meat stick. See how I managed to tie that into the previous very story. Nice. Yes. He faced accusations of lying from the man with the world's next biggest penis, Jonah Falcon, who said he was stretching. The truth is, you see what he did there? That was pretty funny. I do. The man stretched his foreskin constantly, from what I understand, but it's normal underneath. I think it's ridiculous, and he seems kind of desperate. His penis isn't 19 inches. Doctors have acknowledged this and said he could have a normal sex life if he essentially circum- was essentially circumcised. Those claims were backed after Cabrera's penis was examined and scanned by a radiologist. What the CAT scan showed was that there is a very large foreskin. It goes just before the knee. Holy shit, Barry. Jesus. He's stretching that bad boy out. Uh, let's see. But the penis itself 
is uh, is not that big from the pubis, Barry. Always good when we can do a show where we involve the word pubis. Uh, wow. See. So, Barry Rose, is this a Florida man with the world's largest junk or not? That's interesting. So, Jonah Falcon, there is a, I guess there is a very, uh, a very loose kind of wrestling connection. So Jonah Falcon, oh my. <laughs> as always, Jonah Falcon was a guy that lived in New York City or somewhere, Brooklyn, lived in New York and server or manager. He was probably a server is my guess, but he was doing, uh, he had a public access television show. And in the beauty of New York, anyone could have a public access television show. You didn't have to do anything, but he would do it. And he was pretty much into sports. He was a uh, gigantic when it came. There you go. Uh, yeah, he was, yeah. Bing. Bing. He was a gig. He was a big, uh, <laughs> big fan. <laughs> You're way past it. <laughs> I'm way past. He was a fan of, uh, of all sports too. And the water sports. <clears throat> well, there you go. The Howard Stern guys somehow found out about him doing this show and also, and I don't know, found out about the size of his penis, which were two different things. And they would call and they would uh, phony phone call him mercilessly, then play that on the Howard Stern show, of course. But he would get really upset. But I believe he also was a wrestling fan. And he supposedly did have the biggest penis in the world at one point. They used to talk about it. This other guy, I believe, what was the other guy's name? Uh, Roberto. Roberto. Uh, yeah, I deleted the damn story. Okay. There. He said it was a pitcher for the Astros at one point. That guy. <laughs> it was like Roberto Salazar or something similar. You just said, but never heard of this guy. But if you he got it extended by slamming trash can lids together. <laughs> there you go. Thank you very there much. You I'll go. So uh, I'm going to say no. This story did not take place in Florida. Roberto was from Mexico. Mexico. Yes. Uh, so, you know, anyway, Barry, another fine edition of Florida Man or not. Barry, we are nothing if not what? We're givers, Jeff. Of course we are. And because we're givers, we have one additional story to our Florida Man or not oh. segment. Barry, late yesterday, after we'd uh, been rec- done recording all the rest of the Florida Man stories, I saw this little gem and I said, this is Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry material. I have to share it with Barry and the listeners. So, Barry, the headline, uh, 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 professional broadcast voice there, Bear. Woman detained for wearing butt plug urn holding up her boyfriend's ashes. Okay, hold on. <laughs> okay, let's, wait a minute. Let, let's process all that. Okay. <laughs> first of all, can we say this may in fact be the greatest headline we've ever read? That may be. Now, can can you just slowly repeat that? Because there was so much to take in yes. okay. right there. All right. Woman detained for wearing a butt plug urn holding her boyfriend's ashes. So a butt plug urn is really a thing? Well, I'm going to detail it in the story that follows. All right. Very okay. exciting. Confirmed, romance is not dead, even if your boyfriend is. Sarah Button, 23, was attempting to board a flight while carrying her dead boyfriend's ashes in a special place, her butthole. By the way, do you not ever, uh, are you you ever tired of hearing a story that involves the word butthole in it? But anyway. This this is, I'm going to go on a limb and say this didn't come from the Washington Post or New York Times. 
Uh, I think it was, uh, let's New see. New York Post or the uh, it Sun. Was, it was not the Weekly World News or anything like okay. that. Okay. But, uh, anyway, uh, let's see. A situation that, uh, she had had to have known wasn't going to play out well as she documented. Where Mary, of course, TikTok. She oh, mentioned yeah. it on a TikTok video. Uh, anyway, the story continues. According, oh, wait, it says right here, Mary. According to the New York Post, so you know it's got to be accurate. There you go. Security <laughs> officials pulled Sarah and her friend aside, assuming the sex toy was some sort of weapon. They were not amused by the joke. And Sarah, oh, this is the part where it gets good, Barry. Imagine, imagine if you get this phone call from your young daughter. Sarah ended up calling her dad to get assistance from the embassy. Sure. Sarah stated that her late boyfriend had given the plug to her as a gag gift. Oh, I'm sure. At one point because before he died. It was initially a joke because he'd spent so much time in there, and it was his favorite play. Oh, sure. Well, okay, yeah, Sarah yeah, Sarah's sure. open-minded. Now Sarah stores his ashes in her behind because she can, quote, take him places we only dreamed of going, said the law student. Apparently, this isn't the first time she'd flown with her extra carry-on. Anyway, after signing multiple documents, arguing with airport staff, and hours of waiting, Sarah and her friend were eventually let go. No word on if her butt plug, I, I mean her boyfriend, was allowed to join her. Barry Rose, Florida man or not. So ironically, I read the New York Post. It's it's the only newspaper app I have on my cell phone. And I probably look at it three to ten times per day. And somehow this story, this this amazing journalistic story of a woman. So if you saw a story involving a butt plug earner, you're trying to tell the folks that you would, in fact, be open to looking and reading this story? Absolutely. I would have, okay. would have been the first story I would have jumped on. So surprised by the fact that there's a butt plug earn. And that of all – the fact that she I, – I guess this is it. She wants her boyfriend's asses – ashes shoved say. up her ass. It just – it's – boy, it's Because he'd been there so many times before, Barry. Obviously, obviously. But that she went for that hole as opposed to any other hole that well. she could have – right. Ah, great story. It, is there a photo of this young lady first There, off? in fact, is. All right, would you <laughs> so all right, what little side thing here, are we playing hot or not? Because I'm gonna say I'm gonna say this woman's relatively attractive. Well um, here's the the question, the sexist right. big question of the day. All right. Uh if you're scoring a woman in that 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 dated one to ten scale that of course in this day and age, Barry, no one uses anymore. Let's you get canceled. Clear. Absolutely. Of course, yes. Uh if you were going to give her a grade, would you, in fact, raise the grade a point or two at bare minimum if you found out she was amenable to the old butt plug? Yeah, I think so. I, I think you got to give that. It certainly shows a level of open mindedness. And that's it. And that's you know. what it comes down to is that even if that's not your thing, at the same time, you've got somebody that's a little uh, risque and, and has open-mindedness. So I, I would say this would be a solid thumbs up, a solid win. So, get, and I'm, I'm curious to see a photo of her. But getting to your specific question, is she from Florida or not? Florida woman or not? She is not. This woman, this woman's from California. 
Well, Barry, you usually listen very carefully, and apparently you did not in this story because I mistakenly included a one particular word in here that I should not have because, damn it, it would have given you some sort of clue. That word, Barry, is, uh, let me find it here. Uh, Sarah ended up calling her dad to get assistance from the embassy. Ah. tell you the story was not from Florida. Barry Rose, this story, Australia. Apparently, those women out there in Australia, Robert Goodian, what kind of women are going on out there in Australia that they're wearing butt plugs and they're having urns up their ass? What a great story, though, Barry. This headline, I just can't get enough of this, and I can't wait to share this with our group. That is a tremendous uh, story right there. And, yeah, the embassy thing, too. But for some reason, I think embassy, I, I was immediately going to an Asian country. I don't. Maybe it's Asians taking things up their butts. That uh, somehow. Are you stereotyping there, Barry? I might be. I, there, I clearly might now, be stereotyping. Now, just for you, Barry, and for the benefit of you and the sweet man, I All have right. sent both of you the headline so that you can right. pull up. And look at the woman's visage, if you will, her appearance. Lou, please share in your uh, thoughts on this woman's appearance. Uh, Lou, I can see immediately checking out the story. (laughs) Tell the folks what you think of this woman. So funny that, uh, so it comes from eBaum's world. I've heard of that site. Uh, They credit the New York Post within the story. So she's 23 years old. Uh, so she had, she's young, which is nice. She, from this photo, does not appear to be heinous in any form. The, there's two photos. The left, she's wearing a mask. She looks like a 10. On the right, there is no mask. Not quite a 10, but she's not heinous. Taking a butt. I'm curious what, what her boyfriend died of. Oh, Sarah stated that her late boyfriend had given the plug to her as a gag gift at one point. Well, that's what she told her dad. Exactly. Uh, Dad, it was strictly a gag gag. gift. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure sure the word gag may have come into equation with Sarah before in other situations. Also, if she's taking a butt plug, you know, earn up the... Lou, is there any way we could try to get what, – what's the time difference? Can we get Sarah Button on <laughs> the phone? You want to get Sarah on the line? We need to research this story, Jeff, a little more thoroughly. So I think this guest would be approved by Brian Lask. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Uh, Brian, we're going to have this woman who has a butt plug earn up her ass, and Brian's going to be – check, check. Check. <laughs> Ratings. So, Barry, sometimes when I'm doing a Florida man or not uh, – story and I and I see it and I start looking into the story sometimes the the headline and the story just seems so patently bizarre and, and I'm going to I'm going to be straight up honest here I really wonder about the legitimacy of this story but when I saw the story I did a google on it and there's like four or five sources now none of them are the New York Times or the Washington Post or, or some you know like well-known uh uh news uh type of uh, source but there wasn't, it wasn't just like weekly world news, you know? So here's the headline, Barry. And oh boy, is this a good one? All right. Okay. <clears throat> woman who married Ragdoll says relationship is quote, hanging on by a thread after he cheated. Fucking Ragdolls, man. <laughs> <laughs> Those cheating motherfuckers. Fucking always doing this shit. No, yeah. no, you know, the women cannot trust the fucking Ragdoll. I'll just say that. So the story goes, and oh boy, is this a good one. A woman who claims to have married a ragdoll says her relationship is now hanging by a thread one year on 
and has accused her handmade husband of cheating on her. Okay. Maravoni Morales, 37, was all set to celebrate her one-year anniversary with Ragdoll Marcello. Always <laughs> left right. I'm not even kidding. This is the article. Always left brokenhearted after a friend saw him sneaking into a motel with another woman. <laughs> Do I even need to continue our show? <laughs> no, it's, already, it's already this good. So what was the source of this article? <laughs> well, this doesn't give away where the thing. Oh, okay. 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 Uh, the the uh, source is the uh, apparently oh. the Daily Mirror. Daily is, Mirror. Right. Okay. Uh, so uh, Maraboni had uh, previously made headlines after opening up about her whirlwind romance with Marcelo. <laughs> who her mother made for her after listening to her complaints about life as a single person who had nobody to dance with. Mm. On December 18th, 2021, the smitten couple <laughs> <laughs> tied the knot in a wedding ceremony attended by 250 guests. So, Barry, 250 Wow. Guests. No so case for that. You would need to get an invite to go to, I don't know, uh, some somebody in Philadelphia's wedding and they're marrying a doll i'm going i don't know that's absolutely the wedding i'm going to who paid for the wedding what was that movie was it uh lars and the single girl or somebody where lars and the real girl or yeah yeah ryan gosling or who was it uh might be right it was i think it was ryan gosling yeah yeah so uh anyway uh sadly it wasn't long before cracks appear in the uh lou saying that the the couple registered at toys r us that's a good one Sadly, it wasn't long before cracks appeared in their fairy tale. Maravoni claims she and Marcello are now sleeping in separate rooms after she discovered he'd been cheating on her with another woman. That son of a bitch. Uh, She has now opened up about their, quote, stringy romance in a candid TikTok video, which is clocked in, get a load of this, Barry, 1.6 million views. And more than 120,000 likes. Barry Rose, what are you and I doing fucking wrong here on the Arcadian Vanguard Network? We're not getting those kind of likes and views. I was just uh, going to say, we're we're begging for Patreon subscribers. <laughs> this chick's got one point something million views. So of, anyway, of it just gets more fucking bizarre. <laughs> Barry, Florida woman or not. Oh my God. I mean, this is – all right. So she – uh she appears to be Hispanic based off of her name. So we she appears to have some sort of mental challenge. She would have a mental illness as well. If, if, I, if not her, definitely Marcelo the doll may have mental challenges. Yeah. I, well, here's the other thing. They, they're slandering Marcelo. Is there proof that he was going into a motel room with somebody else? Well, here's, uh, you know, now that I, I remembered, I, I just want to add this other little thing. Okay. Devastated, Maravoni says, I found out through a friend who told me that she saw Marcelo entering a motel with another woman while I was hospitalized for three nights and three days with, get a load of this, Marcelino, our son, who had a virus. (laughs) (laughs) They had a son. God bless them with a child, Barry. Oh, Lou, Lou. We don't, we don't, we don't ask a lot. It, could you get contact info for this woman? <laughs> we need to get her on. We need to find out about Marcelino and the baby. We need to find out everything that's going on. I uh, think that son of a bitch Marcelo needs to come on here too and do it. You know, he's yeah. out there, uh, you know, catting around at night. Uh, you know, so <laughs> he's and, out there. Yeah. So oh. uh, anyway, Florida woman or not, Barry? No, this is uh, this is the kind of. 
of story that uh, this is the kind of story that either I'm going to I'm going to profile. It either takes place either in the UK or China. And I only say because the UK would generally report on stories like this. So I'm going to say it's somewhere in the United Kingdom or China. But, uh, well, you know what? I don't think there's a Marcelino over in Shanghai. This took place in <laughs> – oh, Really? That's yeah. incredibly racist of you. Oh, absolutely. I'm going with the U.K. on this one. So where is uh, uh, Sammy Guevara's girl, uh, Ty Conti, from? I think she's Brazilian. Brazil! Wow. That is where Marcelino and Marcelo and the baby and uh, – oh, my God, Barry. What a friggin' story this one was. So yeah, that's, that's about as epic a Florida man story as I think we've ever had. Barry, just when you think that it's safe to be done with Florida man or not, we have one more friggin' additional Florida man or not. This is Florida man intensive episode, Barry. Are you ready for one last story? All right. Bring it on. Courteous man going 110 miles on interstate yells, quote, I'm sorry, unquote, to the deputy as he runs away. Here we go, Barry. Okay. Uh, Man was allegedly driving 110 miles an hour on the interstate when he was pulled over, but took off running, yelling, I'm sorry, to the deputy. Apparently, Zachary Zilbert was in such a hurry that he forgot that his driver's license was suspended. So when the deputy tried to pull him over for speeding, instead of stopping the car like a normal adult, Silbert decided to play Frogger across the interstate. They worked in a Seinfeld reference there, uh, Barry. Very smart. Uh, It was on the police report. Uh, They said that uh, Silbert was reportedly a courteous criminal, though, and yelled, I'm sorry to the deputy, after he took off running across the busy highway lanes. After a short time hiding out, Silbert found a vehicle and reportedly said he would pay the driver to take him back up to the area of the interstate. I guess he forgot. That where uh, that when you uh, we get chased, we hunt you down. If you run from us, he was reportedly found hiding in the back seat. Barry Rose, Florida man or not, on this polite criminal. What was the gentleman's name again? Silbert was his last name. Uh, Zachary Silbert. Zachary Silbert. No clues there. Sorry. No, I know. And I was uh, I paid deep attention and going through everything. Zachary Silbert. Could be Florida. That name could be. I'm going to say it's not. I'm going to say, Jeff, I'm going to say you have pulled a swerve here. What? You have pulled a swerve? Whose podcast? Swerve's podcast. I got to say, I'm a fucking fan of this guy. I don't, this is off topic, but boy, am I a fan of that guy. On that note, off topic here, Bear. Of course, that took place in Pennsylvania. Harry Rose was very close to Pennsylvania. It was Brevard County. Dope. Close, Barry. But no. Barry, it's been a hot moment since we did a good top ten list that involved wrestling. Oh. No, not movies, not television, not music, not pop culture, but good old-fashioned wrestling. Barry, courtesy of thesportster.com, I offer up their choices. I want to emphasize their choices, not necessarily mine or Barry's right. or lose. The top ten best stars from Mid-South Wrestling. Okay. Uh-huh. So right away, Barry, who would you say is the number one star uh, from uh, the 1979 to 1987 era of Mid-South Wrestling? Ah, it's going to come down to two people for me. Oh, shit, three. Uh, it's either going to be Ted DiBiase, who is probably my choice. I think you can make a great case for Steve Williams. But, man, do I love Terry Gordy, though. So, yeah. 
Uh, well, you're 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 missing somebody that definitely should be either one or two here, Barry. I am missing. Uh, Grab them was... cakes, Barry. Oh, J- yeah, you're right. JYD, absolutely. Yeah, you know, so... I, what year did he leave? Was it '85? Uh, no, I want to say it was. Here, he. Uh, late '84, maybe. Okay. He was still doing the uh the yeah, well anyway. Uh, I'm sure someone who knows more than we do will uh, undoubtedly when this comes out will say I can't believe you didn't know the exact date June 12th that you know whatever somebody will say that. So I'm sure Mid South has their own uh, Bob McKeon. So anyway, let's get the top ten list of the biggest stars from Mid or I'm sorry, top ten best stars from Mid South Wrestling. I remember reading this article a while ago because I have it saved for a while. I'm guessing that there's some stuff we might disagree with on this list. Number okay. 10, <laughs> I like that. A previous guest here on Breaking K-Fade with Boudron and Barry, sadly no longer with us. But, Barry, how can we forget the appearance of Hacksaw Butch Reed? So absolutely would. And that's, that's somebody I thought about as well. I just I wouldn't put him at the same level as the names that I mentioned. But Hacksaw Butch Reed was absolutely an invaluable star to the Mid-South promotion. My my opinion as well, probably his greatest work also. Uh, hard-pressed to think, you know, he was certainly never better after he left Mid-South, that I would say. So I, you could probably make a case, you know, he had some great work in Florida as a babyface. But Butch Reed was great. People will will ask me, and I just got asked this question when we were in Lutz a couple of weeks ago for the Fan Fest, and people will say, you guys have talked to a lot of people. What's been your favorite interview so far? And I think the the name that I hear most often is Jimmy Garvin. And we, uh, if for those that either don't remember or forgotten or senility sitting in, and uh, we had Jimmy Garvin on for three episodes it was probably a three to four hour interview and you just talk about a guy that was an open book. It was, and it wasn't so much that Jeff and I were even the interviewers. We were in the right place at the right time. Jimmy Garvin is that good. And he wanted to talk about his life and career for hours. So we really lucked out, but Butch Reed was at a period where we were doing one or two interviews per week and we got Butch and most were about 30, 35 minutes and we got Butch on the phone and I started telling this story and uh, I don't know if we've ever told this on air, Jeff. So what the hell, right? So we've Go got Butch it. Reed. Yeah, we got Butch Reed on the phone. We call, I think it goes straight to voicemail. So we give it a couple of minutes as we normally do. We call Butch Reed again and Jeff in the background is saying, I really hope he picks up this time. Completely innocuous comment. Well, Butch Reed overheard that and Butch Reed, no, no joking, no anything says, what'd you just say? <laughs> and, and Butch Reed is like literally five states away, and, and oh, I, yeah. I, I may have wet myself. <laughs> you did, and he was so fucking intimidating with us on the phone at that moment. He goes, and and Jeff <laughs> Jeff completely caught off guard, stuttering and stammering a little bit, going, "No, I was just." And he's going, "What'd you say?" He's cutting you off and going, "What did you say?" So we had to explain to him, and it all seemed to work out. But it took Butch a solid 10 to 15 minutes to warm up to us in the beginning of that interview. You could clearly see he wasn't having it by the time of the interview. He's calling me pretty boy. He's insulting us. We're having a lot of fun with him. He was talking barbecue, Kansas city versus. Yes. Yeah. It was good times. So I would say Butch Reed 
absolutely should be on this list. Yeah, and sadly, uh, Butch would have made a great, great guest at one of the fan fests. All hundred percent, hundred percent. Not even a question. He would have been uh, just tremendous. He was a he was a reserved guy. Once he opened up, he started talking. But uh, he was a friendly guy as well. And I'm lucky. Nick Nick Massey, our old friend, Captain, Captain's Corner, did a signing with him maybe six months before he passed. And that would have been pretty much right before COVID. And uh, I was lucky to have got to meet Butch then. So, yeah, he would he would have been a great guest, Jeff. Number nine, Bobby Eaton of the Midnight Express. As one of the top ten stars of Mid-South. I, oh, this is going to so, get me in a so, lot of shit, huh? So, no, no. So here's the thing. Okay. Nice guy. Bobby Eaton would be in the top three in the history of Mid-South. Okay. Sure. Uh, tag team wrestlers, Bobby Eaton, if it's not, it's not even top three. It's like one or two. Okay. Uh, fantastic, fantastic wrestler could do literally anything. But if you're talking about the biggest names in the history of Mid-South or the biggest stars. I don't know that Bobby Eaton really belongs in the top 10. Uh, and, and again, we have to give the caveat that, you know, to somebody else's list, I, I would, Bobby Eaton, I would love to have be in the top three of this list just because he was such a great person and a great guy. Nobody ever really said anything negative that I can remember about Bobby Eaton. That's right. But I don't know if he belongs in the list of the top 10. Let me quantify by saying uh, top 10 best stars from Mid-South Wrestling. Now, Barry, he, he we've, we've, we've kind of put all those caveats there. Tell us what you think. Yeah, he doesn't. It's uh, Look, I liked Bobby. You'll never hear a negative word. People that were in the ring with him will tell you as well that Bobby Eaton is one of the greatest hands ever in, in the history of professional wrestling. So he's got the respect of not only fans, and he's loved by fans or was loved by fans, but people that worked with him have the, hold him at the utmost respect. You could ask Steve Kern, uh, and Steve Kern, who has worked as a tag team, Mike Graham for several years, Stan Lane, high profile several years. When he talks about Bobby Eaton, he gushes and raves about how incredible he was. With that, is he one of the 10 biggest stars in the history of Mid-South? Not even close. So this, by putting Bobby Eaton on there, and again, this is not a knock if we're talking tag teams, nice guys, and every other list that you just tried to quantify, that's fine. But uh, this list, this person is either pandering to a certain group of people, which is usually the wrestling internet, and that's what it sounds like, or this list is just completely jaded by his personal bias, and he's not looking at the overall larger picture. That's my opinion. Now, uh, honestly, if this, instead of Bobby Eaton, and I know he would hate to hear this, but if Jim Cornette was here at number nine, I would yeah. say, okay, I could understand that. Again, Bobby, you know, I, I had the chance to meet Bobby on more than one occasion. Fantastic guy. Love talking wrestling with him. Just don't know that he belongs in the top 10 of biggest stars. Now, number eight, another guy we've interviewed, Barry. It's our uh, our latest friend of Breaking Kayfabe. It's, it's Terry Allen, Magnum TA. And I would argue maybe Magnum should be a little bit higher on this list. Yeah. So what you said he was number eight? Yes. Magnum was a huge – this was the launching point of his career, essentially, because this was really the first huge main event push he got. He he pulled it off 
this wasn't a case of uh, giving the guy the slot and he didn't do anything with it. He became a main event star. And uh, yeah, I would say if I was going top 10, I think the only thing that would hurt Magnum would be the length of time that he was a top star in Mid-South because I don't think it was too long. What would it have been a year to a year and a half, Jeff? Uh well, you'll see. You had his run with the North American title. You also had his uh, tag team with uh, Wrestling Two. I'm thinking year and a half, two years, something somewhere in that window. Yeah. Yeah, but I I do think I th- you know he was a I I think it, he deserves to be on the list. So yeah, I would say yeah, it's fine. Okay, so the question then becomes at number seven in Mid South, not post Mid South, where you could make the argument definitely, but in the Mid South years. Was Dr. Death Steve Williams a bigger star in Mid-South than Magnum TA? Because I don't think he was, but they have him at number seven. I, I know Bill Watts wishes that was true. That's it. And yeah. that it was the push because, my God, between he and Jim Ross, they would talk about Steve Dr. Death Williams and put him over with, you know, he he was everything to them. And, uh you know, yeah, I I would have to. I I think Williams is a bigger star. Doesn't make him better, but I think he was a bigger star. But I would also base that off of the the amount of time that he spent in Mid South because he was there for years at that point. So I I think I actually agree with that one. I I think uh, you know, I, I think the level of stardom that Magnum TA reached. I I think Bill Watts had always hoped that uh that Doc would reach that. I think Doc did reach that level of stardom after he left Mid-South and like Japan, yeah. his team with Terry Gordy. I, I don't know that he ever, re- you know, you're right. He did have a definitely a longer run in Mid-South than, uh, than Magnum. I don't, I don't know that he ever reached that, uh, that level though. So number six, Barry, it's the old Ohio hacksaw Jim Duggan at number six. What say you? So I don't know if I would put Hacksaw Jim Duggan above Magnum and Steve Dr. Death Williams, but with it, I think he does deserve because it made him a star. And let's be honest, this is what the key to the, a lot of the success of Mid-South was to me is that Bill Watts was able to take guys and certainly he had a lot of guys that had been stars, Dick Murdoch, Ernie Ladd, et cetera. They had been stars, but he was able to take guys like Hacksaw Jim Duggan that wasn't a big star. Anywhere else, Steve, Dr. Death Williams, uh, Magnum TA, just guys that for whatever reason weren't huge stars. He was able to give them a platform, but the beauty of it was between them, their in-ring work, promos, everything else, along with the booking coming from Watts, they always succeeded, right? So I like Duggan. I just wouldn't put him uh, above Magnum or Dr. Death Steve Williams. That's for sure. So the, the irony there is, here are these guys that Bill Watts made huge stars, uh, and seemingly they all left, and they left because, let's be honest, uh, although Bill was super creative and, and the ideas he had to get guys over and uh, the angles and programs and stuff like that, he literally pushed them so hard, uh, not just, you know, like with, uh, you know, the travel and all that, but the demands, uh, that he had as a promoter and booker. That it was it was like a double edged sword. I'm going to make right. you a star, but you're going to leave me because I'm such an asshole as a promoter, you know. And, and let's be honest, I don't think anyone ever got super rich working for Bill. They they made good money, you know. Magnum talked about that, you know. I mean, he he left uh, knowing that Bill was paying him, you know, very good money, but the promise that going to work for Dusty 
was going to make him much better money. Although initially the, the, you know, what, what they were offering him was not what he was making with Bill Watts, but it was that sort of that, like, uh, you know, the proverbial ceiling versus the floor while the ceiling with, uh, Bill Watts might have been higher. Uh, or I'm sorry, the floor might have been higher. The ceiling was going to be much higher with Dusty and, uh, and Jim Sure. Crockett. So anyway, uh, at number five, Barry, let me tell you a little something about the rock and roll. Oh, <sighs> you know what? You can never, whatever the rock and roll did in the eighties, I don't think anybody can ever second guess it because they were that big. So I'm fine with them being on the list. Again, I might play with the numbers a bit, but you know, my God, the rock and roll. And again, rock and roll solidified their careers, uh, being in mid south. At that point, it was left mid south and went to NWA, if I'm correct. And the rest was history. Uh, I don't know for people that were not fans at the time. And, you know, let's be honest with, we have fans in the group that listened to us that, uh, that weren't around in uh, yeah. 1985. Uh, you know, people, it, it's, Basically, to say people in their like early to mid thirties, they uh, they see the Rock and Roll Express almost like as a a novelty act now. You know, these guys out there that are in their sixties still working. You cannot understand just how insanely over the Rock and Roll Express were in Mid South. I mean, they were insanely over in Crockett too. The the reaction, especially of the female fans, was just fucking crazy. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so yeah, they definitely go. Now here's a little, I'm going to say, as I'm reading this list, like I said, I, I, uh, I first read it a while ago, so it's been a hot tick since I've, uh, since I've been back to look at this number four, JYD, is this too low for him, Barry? It might be because I think you've got a solid and I'll tell you why is, uh, so JYD was the biggest, I mean, it, it, he was the biggest star to ever come out of Mid-South. It literally, here was a guy that was working prelims, uh, was doing jobs, Canada, working in Calgary, Nashville, uh, not, never a great worker. Bill Watts took him between the two. You got to give JYD some credit, made him what might have been at the time the biggest star in the country. Uh, and also had a run that went, you know, what, five years, which is a, a real solid length of time. It might be too low. I, I This is going to, regardless of who is on top, and again, this isn't a work rate or anything else. This is a guy, essentially, big star, putting butts in seats. That's probably what it, what it means. JYD should be higher then. He, uh, you know, let's be honest, uh, as the article states here, was not a good worker. Okay? Sure. He had a tremendous gimmick, uh, and all credit to Bill Watts for giving him the gimmick, creating that character. But then Sylvester Ritter was the one that took that gimmick and ran with it. Uh, he was the guy that did those promos, uh, that got his character over so well. This guy was a cultural icon in mid south, but specifically Louisiana, like New Orleans. I can't even begin. It's almost like the phenomenon that I've discussed where Chagusa Nagoyo, uh, as one of the crush girls was so over with the, the targeted teenage audience for the all Japan women, the insanely way that she was over, but just within this niche audience, that's the way that JYD was over in Louisiana. Uh, you know, like maybe if JYD went to Tulsa, he was over as a big baby face. But like, you know, like in, uh, 
in Louisiana and in New Orleans, he was like, uh, it was just like at a different level. And the, there's the story that is out there. I, I think Michael Hayes has told this story about how when uh, he was wrestling in the match uh, against the Freebirds and specifically Michael Hayes, where JYD was blinded by the uh, the hair cream. And so he's out there and he's he's blindfolded and he's working this match with with Michael Hayes. And Michael Hayes has so much heat on him that uh, as he gets outside the ring, someone, someone's getting ready to, uh, to pull a gun on Michael Hayes at ringside. And Michael Hayes says he hears the guy say, don't worry, uh, don't worry, dog. I got you covered. Uh, because he, the fans felt the need to protect the blinded JYD. That's the level of, uh, the, the, uh, I don't want to say the hardcoreness of their fans because it wasn't a hardcore, the devotion of the fans in New Orleans and in Louisiana for JYD was almost insane, almost scary, Barry. Yeah, you know what? They believed. And, it, you know, they, you're talking about a region, too, that I think economically was really struggling. There wasn't a lot of money. And a lot of that fan base would, I believe, was scraping together pennies to be able to get tickets for things. And you had JYD come in and essentially, even though he wasn't from New Orleans or, you know, but he was, he was a hometown hero and became a hero of the people. And he was essentially, what Dusty Rhodes had been 10 years earlier to the people of Florida. That's but very I, yes. Yeah, but I believe in JYD's case, it was even deeper. I think that may be, that may be one of the greatest, if not the greatest connection that a wrestler ever had with their fan base. Cause I don't, I, again, he wasn't able to take that out of New Orleans. He wasn't able to take it out of, uh, out of Mid South. What he did in the Federation wasn't even close. I'm not talking wrestling. I just mean that connection. He was essentially another character in the Federation and by the, in personal things and drug use, et cetera. By the time he wound up leaving the Federation, he was bloated. Uh, you know, guy wasn't having good matches, but he never replicated that success. It was right place at right time. He should be number one, though, I think, without a doubt. And, you know, uh, you mentioned uh, Dusty in Florida. I mentioned Chigusa in, uh, in the All Japan Women. Here's another one you could probably compare to. And, and I, I say this because I think that you, when you're talking about the cultural impact, it has to be something where people that aren't wrestling fans know yep. the name. You know, people yep. that weren't wrestling fans knew about the Junkyard Dog in Louisiana. Yep. And, you know, the other name, that probably, the Von Erichs in Dallas and in Texas. You know, people that weren't necessarily wrestling fans in Dallas probably knew the, who the Von Erichs were. Just because, you know, for that that window of time, they were so insanely over. And, you know, uh, Incredible Peak, you know. Tremendous Valley also, you know, and unfortunately that ended up happening to JYD. Speaking of the Von Erics, at number three, Barry, it's Terry Michael and Buddy Jack, the fabulous Freebirds. Now, here, I think they belong on the list. Uh, we've all, always said that a good hero always needs a villain. JYD had Michael Hayes, and then they came back and, you know, then they had the, the Michael Hayes, Ted DiBiase, Doc, and and uh, Duggan, uh, you know, that that whole storyline. I don't know the fabulous Freebirds are all should be this high, though. What say you? And I love I, the Freebirds. Let me just say that. Oh, no, yeah, just, absolutely. You know. Especially these Freebirds. Yes. This these Freebirds, along with the uh, the TBS Freebirds, were the best, in my opinion, uh, by far. <sighs> Top 10. I like that you put them as a unit. 
Uh, I didn't put them as a unit. The article put them as a unit. But. Yeah, yeah. But I liked okay. I liked the fact that that was done. Putting them as a unit. Michael Hayes deserves to be on strictly for his mouth. That didn't come out right. Michael Hayes oh deserves uh, because of his promo and interview work deserves to be on. Gordy, obviously, in the ring. I, I just think he's – I thought he was great. And I thought this was – a other than Japan, this was the best Gordy that I ever saw. Uh, uh, so I really liked him. I liked him. I, again, I would say you're putting the Freebirds above JYD. That's crazy. No, and, that, and that's my point exactly. I think yeah. they absolutely belong on the list. I just don't yeah. know if they ahead of you know, JY. And this they is don't. Like high. So number two, Barry, oh, it's the head cheese of the Rat Pack. It's at Ted Debussy. Yeah, Debussy, absolutely. And it was, that's one of the first names. And Debussy wins on a lot of things. Solid babyface, uh, great work as a babyface, also one of the best heels and length of time that he spent, uh, in the promotion. My God, he was there forever for years and years. He deserves to be top five. He deserves to be top five. Yeah. So Barry, we're now at number one. Tell me who you think number one is that has not been mentioned yet. All right. So we've gone through DiBiase. We've gone through Duggan. We've gone through Reed. Not Buddy Landell, but he wouldn't be number one. So, But Buddy was super entertaining. So this is an odd one. This is a name that comes to mind, Bill Watts himself. And Bill Watts, I would have actually said, yeah, okay, that, you know, you may not agree with it. But it's an interesting choice. However, the number one choice, I think, when you consider Mid-South Sports, and you could even go into the UWF, this article says the number one biggest or best star is Sting. Okay, I mean, there you go. Are you fucking kidding me? Really? Now this article becomes completely invalidated because while you could certainly say that post Mid-South, post-UWF, that Sting, of course, he became a huge star. I mean, there's no question about that. But really, he was in Mid-South for a year as part of a tag team with the Ultimate Warrior called the Blade Runners. And then he, you know, he comes, he's teaming with, uh, what do you call it, Eddie Gilbert and Rick Steiner. By the way, Steiner and Sting, one of the great forgotten tag teams. And, uh, I loved, you know, and, uh, Hyatt and Hot Stuff International, that kind of stuff was tremendous. But Sting is not the biggest fucking star in the history of Mid-South. Come on, you got to do better than this, Barry. Yeah, you know what? Rick Steiner was the biggest star. <laughs> yeah, Maybe it, it was it, Shane Douglas that was. That. Let me just say, Michael <laughs> Wire is the person that uh, wrote this article. Michael, get him. I don't get know him who you phone. are. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'd love to get him on the uh, show so he could explain himself. Uh, again, if you're including the totality of the career. You know, uh, maybe you could make an argument that Sting is the biggest star to ever come out of there. But he's not. Uh, uh, I know. He's still not. Yeah. yeah but, I, I mean, you could – top ten, uh, if you're including – like, if they had put Sting at nine or ten, based on the fact that that's where he started, I could understand that. Sting was never as big a star as JYD. He was never Jeff. as big a star uh, as the other people on this list. Michael Wire, W-I-R-E? W-E-Y-E-R. Okay, I butchered that. Like W E Y R E Y E R wire. Okay, kind of like buyer, but wire. Yeah, exactly. Any idea where he lives? Uh, I have no idea. I'm guessing it's. All right, I found south. three Michael wires. 
Indiana, Pennsylvania, and the first one I don't know. We should get this guy on because I need to understand how you put Sting at number one. That's like Chris Adams is the greatest of all time in Mid-South or Terry Taylor. These were guys that were all part of great angles that were short-lived. What was Sting there? Six, eight months? A year? Max? Yeah. I love the first family. No Eddie Gilbert? You're putting Sting above Eddie Gilbert. Uh, no, uh, No Ernie Ladd? No Ernie Ladd, no no Roop. And look, I like Roop, but he shouldn't be in the top ten either. Yeah, no but, Paul Orndorff, uh, you know. No, there you go. And if you're gonna if you're gonna include outside after Mid South, how do you not include Paul Orndorff at least in the top ten? Uh, you know, for his run with Hogan and stuff like that. Anyway, yeah, we're gonna have to try to reach out to this damn Michael Wire and have him explain himself, folks. Anyway, we will post this list so that you can look at this and go, "What the fuck was this guy talking about?" <laughs> uh, in our Facebook group at Breaking Kayfabe about Jordan Barry. So who do you think? was not mentioned that should be in the Mid-South top 10 best stars. I'm going to hope that my good friend, Brother Jeff Steele, has an opinion on this after all the years he watched Mid-South uh, from his beautiful, luxurious home in Jackson, Mississippi. Very about time for the old go home here on another episode of Breaking Babe with Baldrin and or Barry. Are you ready to take it home, Barry? This has been a fun, action-packed episode, and uh, so much going on with this episode. We got a little rant. We had the birth announcement of the Spikers, uh, a lot of floor, the extra tug and pull, and whatever it was, uh, Florida Man segment. This was a big episode for us, Jeff. They what are num- all. What number was this? I don't know. Four hundred and seventy. No, we are two hundred and sixty-eight. Barry, that's it. All so right. yes, it's hard to all believe. Right. But to, anyway, until next week, I will remind you that breaking kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, the comfortable shoe of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, if you will. Gunny, good night. I'll see you in the morning, my buddy. On behalf of Barry Rose and Lou Kippelman, we will talk to you 